Let's turn again to 1 Peter. We'll start at verse 3 in chapter 1, just to read the context and move on through to the next part. 1 Peter, starting in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, strong and kind, we would pray that you'd help us tonight, that you would feed our faith, that you would give us sure handholds for our suffering, and we pray that you'd make much good out of it. In your kind providence, we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember last week, uh, we spent a lot of time looking at the bright hope of a Christian. And it was wonderful. It was a lot of fun. This week, we find out that Peter was talking about all that hope for a reason. And that reason is he's getting us ready to talk about suffering. That's exactly where Peter goes next. At this point in his letter, he turns to give us some words to hold on to in suffering. And verse 6 shows us that these words are for everybody. They're not just for Christians with big persecution problems. They're not just for Christians with... Everyday problems. They're for everybody. Verse 6 says these words are for Christians who have been grieved by trials. For any Christian who's ever had their hearts ripped to shreds by hard things. Verse 6 says these are words for Christians who've been grieved by various trials. That word means all different kinds of trials. So what we're looking at tonight are words from the Lord to those who have been grieved by all kinds of different trials. They're handholds from God to keep us from sliding into despair, something to catch ourselves on. They're anchor points for our faith to hold on to when horrible suffering threatens to pull us under. I count four words of comfort in this passage, at least, and we'll just take them up one at a time. Four handholds for suffering. So let's start with handhold number one. I'll say it this way. No matter how bad you're suffering, you still have an untouchable hope. That's first. If 
for our first point, we'll just kind of drive a little bit deeper everything we talked about last week. I know it'll be some repetition, but taking it as one big package and just drive it in a little deeper, a little bit of review. Last week we saw that we have an untouchable hope. Not that it's not real, but it's something that the sorrows of this world can't touch. That no matter what you're suffering, there are a couple of things that remain objectively true. That it remains objectively true that you have a God that loves you. That no matter what you're suffering, it remains objectively true that God has already done wonderful things for you. Things like God the Son gave his life for you. God the Father raised his Son back to life for you. God the Spirit unites you to Jesus in his resurrection life so you can be born again into a new family of God. He's done wonderful things for you. Then finally, because of all this, no matter what you're suffering, it remains objectively true that God has something wonderful stored up for you. He has an inheritance for you. He has a salvation for you, all of which they're ready to be revealed. That's the first handhold that God gives us in our suffering. We have a living hope that is objectively true and completely untouchable no matter what. So it's like this. A lot of horrible things can happen on planet Earth, and it doesn't affect the sun one bit. You can rant and rave. You can deny the sun's existence. The entire Earth can shake from its foundations. It can storm and flood and do all kinds of things, and, but the sun's still going to be there tomorrow. It's objectively true and untouchable by us no matter what. And so it is with your hope in God. No matter what you're suffering, it's objectively true that your God loves you, that he's given you eternal life, he has wonderful things in store for you, and that's the first handhold that the Lord gives in 1 Peter for our suffering. Handhold number one, our untouchable hope. It's handhold number one, I'll review. Let's go into new territory now. Let's go to handhold number two. I'll summarize it this way. No matter how long you've been suffering, it's only for a little while. So that second handhold comes, comes pretty quick. I don't want you to miss it. God tells us in this passage that no matter what you're suffering, it's only going to be for a little while. So look at verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, in this. This is talking about all of the great things that are our hope. In all of that, we rejoice. Though now for a little while, you have been grieved by various trials. I think it's all there in the phrase, a little while. Let's talk about what God isn't saying. Let's talk about what God is saying. God isn't promising that he's only going to let his people suffer in tiny little spurts. That's not his promise. Like, if you're a true Christian, then you're only going to have to suffer a little bit at a time. That's not what God's saying. What God's doing is he's looking at our lives from an eternal perspective. He's looking at the 30, 60, 90 years of our life in light of the infinite timeline of eternity. And he's saying, when you finally get to stand back and look at things from that vantage point, you will see that your longest and most stubborn suffering has only been for a little while. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge that this might be a really hard thing to hear if you're suffering. Your heart might not take a word like this all that well. Your heart might be thinking, well, 
I've been dealing with this chronic pain for 35 years. You're not going to tell me that's just a little while. Don't patronize me, Pastor. Or your heart might be screaming, well, I've felt the searing agony of loss for 5, 10, 50 years. It's just not helpful for you to tell me that it's only going to be a little while. Fair enough. But you should not hear God patronizing you here. You shouldn't hear him saying, just toughen up. It's only 50 years. What's your problem? Your God's not like that. He understands what you're going through. He went through far worse in his son than you've ever gone through. In fact, he went through worse in his son in solidarity with you and for you. So no, he's not patronizing you. He's just helping you see. He's saying something more like, child, just hang on a little longer. Child, when you finally get here, you're going to see this pinprick of suffering. It's going to get swallowed up by an eternal ocean of joy. Or 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the second handhold he gives for our suffering. He says, it's only going to be a little while. It's only going to be a little while. Handhold number three. No matter how cruel your suffering may seem, it has a good purpose. So for our third handhold, we're coming to kind of the biggest chunk of this section. That point is that no matter how bad your suffering is, it has a good purpose. And the first place I think we see this is in the phrase, if necessary. See that there in verse 6. It says, if necessary, we are grieved by various trials. The idea here is that you suffer the things you suffer because it's necessary for you. And that immediately begs a couple questions, doesn't it? Says who? I'm going through this suffering. Who says it's necessary for me to go through this? Or why is it necessary for me to go through this? And we could say all kinds of things about this here, but let's just stick with what the passage says. Well, for one, the logic of this passage straight up tells you that the person who thinks it's necessary for you to suffer is God. It follows from this that that God is the one who ordains your suffering. If you don't believe me, you could just take a sneak peek at 1 Peter 4.19, the theme verse of the whole book. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's just an unavoidable package of having a sovereign, omnipotent God. If you want a sovereign, omnipotent God, then he has to be in charge of everything. And he's in charge of your suffering. We go through suffering because he deems it necessary. Which begs that second enormous question. We got the first question. says who? It's God. Okay, well then the next big question is why? Why is it necessary for me to suffer this way? Now, the first important answer to this question is kind of our baseline answer is that, well, God has to have truckloads of good and wise reasons for why he thinks it's necessary for you to suffer. We can't cover all those reasons here, 
You could search the whole Bible. There's lots of reasons why God could have. It's also important to note that we deserve worse suffering than we get, and that not all the reasons for our suffering are about us. You could go down a whole litany of reasons, but here in 1 Peter, God gives some important insight into at least one of those reasons, at least one big reason for our suffering. Because in a nutshell, God says that our suffering is necessary to show the genuineness of our faith. That's what he's saying here. Now, I know I've got to explain that a little while, so let's do that. God says your suffering is necessary to show the genuineness of your faith. So let's just take this to the realm of friendship. You actually already understand this pretty intuitively in the realm of friendship. How do you know who's a real friend and who's a fake friend? Well, it's impossible to tell who's your real friend when you're just hanging out having fun. It's impossible to tell when things are great, your friends are benefiting from you, and they want to be around you because they're benefiting from you. But it's a lot easier to tell who your true friends are when you're going through hard things. It's a lot easier to tell who your true friends are after you've had a fight with them. They're the ones who stick around. Now you transfer that principle over to spiritual things, and you say, well, there are, there's true faith, and there's false faith. True friends of God and fake friends of God. There's a true faith that clings to Jesus no matter what. That's true friendship with God. And then there's fake faith that thinks Christianity's great, Christianity's hunky-dory, until Christianity costs me something or doesn't give me something that I want. It reminds me of Jesus' parable of the sower. False faith people are... They'll respond with enthusiasm for a little while, but then hard things come and they fall away. Or then the devil steals the word out, or they get choked up by the world. Or... So how do we see whether a person has true faith or false faith? It's through the mechanism of suffering. That's what verse 7 is all about. Look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. Peter's comparing your suffering to the refining process of gold. Back then, if you wanted to get true gold out of rocks, you have to do a lot of smashing, grinding, washing, and melting. It's a hard process. That's what your suffering is, brothers and sisters. It's a smashing and a grinding, and a washing, and a melting that at the end of the day reveals the true nature of your faith. Just think about it. If you can cling to Jesus in spite of lifelong disappointment, heart-rending loss, terrible pain, or even the betrayal of other Christians, if you can cling to Christ through all those things, well, obviously, your faith's the real deal. This is the real kind of faith, the right kind of faith. I'll read you a little snippet from my article I found from ACBC by Paul Taukas, where he says, that's what he says. He says, the picture here is of an ancient goldsmith who puts his crude gold ore in a crucible, subjects it to intense heat, and liquefies the mass. The impurities rise to the surface, and they're skimmed away. When the metal worker is able to see the reflection of his face clearly mirrored in the surface of the liquid, he takes it off the fire. For he knows that the contents are pure gold. 
So it is with God and His child. He puts us in the crucible of Christian suffering, in which process sin is gradually put out of our lives. Our faith is purified from the slag of unbelief that somehow mingles with it so often. And the result is the reflection of the faith of, face of Jesus Christ in the character of the Christian. This, above all, God the Father desires to see. Christ-likeness is God's ideal for His child, and Christian suffering is one of the most potent means to that end. That's one reason why you suffer, brothers and sisters. Because it shows that your faith is the real deal. It shows it to you. It reveals this to you. Because if you can cling to Christ through all the suffering that I've seen some of you go through, you can have pretty good assurance. Yep, I'm a Christian. It also shows it to God. Now, of course, God doesn't need to be shown anything. He doesn't need to be shown that your faith is real. He knows everything in an instant, immediately, perfectly. But when you still cling to God in your suffering, He will hold that up as beautiful evidence of your faith. And listen, He finds your steadfast faith to be among the most precious things in all of creation. Your steadfast faith. The world thinks gold's the most precious substance on earth. But God knows, like it says here, He knows that gold is going to perish through the fire on the last day. But true, God-given, God-sustained faith will not perish through that fire. No, if, if, it, if your faith can pass through the fire now, the fire that you're going through now, then that faith is going to bring you through the fire of the last day. And on that day, God's going to take special delight in the faith of His people. The faith of His people that clung to Him in spite of every difficulty. The faith of His people that clung to Him in the spite of every pain. And He's going to reward that faith where He finds it. That's what the rest of verse 7 is about. Look there. God is forging in you and proving in you a genuine faith so that on the last day, here's what it says, that faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want you to get this. You might be tempted to think that this promise is all about the praise and glory and honor that our faith will bring God on that day. And that's certainly true. Our faith declares Him worthy of all of our trust and brings Him glory. But this sentence is talking more about the praise and the glory and the honor that He wants to give you. His suffering child on that day. That's the context. Peter's talking about our faith. He's talking about the end result of our faith. And he says it will result in these things. And if you think, oh, that sounds kind of sketchy, Pastor Rosser, how about Romans 2? Romans 2.6. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. At the end of the day, it's all one piece, isn't it? God gives us faith. God sustains our faith. Then He rewards our faith that He gave us. And our faith brings Him glory. It's all of that. So this is our third handhold in suffering. That no matter how we suffer, God has great purposes for our suffering. One of those purposes is the proving and the rewarding of the faith that He sustains in our hearts. And that brings us to our last point. Probably my favorite of these points. Handhold number four. We've seen the untouchable hope. 
is a handhold. We see it's just for a little while. We've seen it has great purposes. How about one more handhold? The last handhold of this passage is just this. That no matter how lonely you're suffering, you still have Jesus. You hear that? No matter how horrible you're suffering, you still have Jesus. That's not nothing. That's everything. Peter's just reminded us, you're going to see Jesus. The end of verse 7, he references the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, you're going to see him. That's the last day when Jesus comes back to earth and everybody's going to see him. But that's still future hope. That's still handhold number one. What about now? Say, I need something now. Well, you have something now. You have the very presence of our great God and Savior by faith. I have to think Peter's marveling a little bit here. Kind of impressed a little bit right here. I mean, he saw Jesus. He did see Jesus. He saw Jesus a lot. But here he's reflecting on all of us faraway Gentiles, and he says, you have not seen him. Meaning, you didn't see him when he was on earth like I did. But you love him. Even more amazingly, you don't see him now either. You're going through all this suffering and you still don't see him. It says, though you do not now see him. Saying, we don't see him yet. It's true. But what Peter's marveling at is the fact that we do still know him and we do still rejoice in him by faith because our faith connects us to him. We have a faith that's got good evidence behind it, a faith that's anchored in lots of things. We read in nature, we read the strong and brilliant hand of God's design. We read in our human nature, we read his personhood and his majesty. We know he's there, the whole world knows he's there, there's a faith there. You can sense that he's there, the whole world knows that he's there, has faith, just on the things that he's made. But better still, we read about him in his word, we read about his miracles, we read about his authoritative teachings, we read about that perfect blend of love and holiness that he shows. We read about his prophecies, read about his sacrifice, read about all these things, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We come to know him through his word, and as we come to know him, we reach for him. And as as we reach for him, he makes himself more and more present with us in intangible ways. And I really mean to say that. This is the greatest comfort that you could ever have in your suffering. That Jesus Christ is really and truly here with you in your suffering now. He's present in his promises. He's present in his people. He's also present in the felt presence of his Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian and you've gone through any amount of suffering, you know exactly what I mean. You haven't seen him but you've traced his goodness and his promises. You've seen his goodness and his providences, but you've also felt his presence. And in all these things, he's made himself very real to you in your suffering. And so we love him. And so we believe in him. And last, Peter says, we rejoice with him with a joy that's inexpressible, with a joy that's filled with glory, Because the joy that comes from knowing Jesus Christ is inexpressible, isn't it? It's inexpressible because how do you describe it? You just have to experience it first. You can't describe 
The inexpressible joy of knowing Jesus Christ, you just have to experience it. It's inexpressible because it's more than your emotions can handle. It fills you up to overflowing. I think that's why we have to sing, because singing is a whole soul response to God's goodness. He fills you with knowing Jesus Christ, fills you with a joy that's inexpressible. It also fills you with a joy that's full of glory. I love this word, this word in Greek. It's pointing to the fact that this is a heavenly joy. It's a heavenly joy word. In union with Christ, get this, in union with Christ, you experience a joy that only comes from God's presence. Knowing Jesus is a heaven before heaven. It's full of glory. It's a glorious joy. That's what that word means. So this is our fourth and our best handhold in suffering, brothers and sisters. It's knowing with certainty that Jesus is with you. So let's start to close. I know that as I preach this, I wonder how all this is hitting you tonight. Maybe this sermon itself is like a little test of your faith. I wonder if you're going through suffering or if you're just reflecting on past suffering, like really bad suffering, I wonder, do the things we've just talked about, do they seem like solid handholds? Yeah, I can hold on to those things. They're going to get me through. Or do they sound kind of like empty nothings? I could see it go either way, whether or not, depending on whether you have faith or not. Because without faith, these words sound a lot like a lot of nothing, right? Great pastor, I'm promised a pie in the sky with no relevance to my trials today. Great, I've got some insensitive patronization. Oh, you're just going to suffer a little while, get over it. Oh, those are just a cruel rationalization. He has good reasons for your suffering, so it's all just so God looks good. Or they're just ephemeral wispiness, just like, just remember, Jesus is always with you. I can see how someone could hear all these things and not really be comforted at all. I, I give people things like this in my counseling all the time, and I can see it in their eyes. They're saying, well, thanks for nothing, Pastor. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. When you know him, when the Lord's giving real faith to your heart, by faith you know these truths are not nothing. They're the thing. They're priceless. If there's a God, and there is, this is everything. Dare to believe it. These words are a sure promise of a secure hope. They give you a bigger perspective to help you hang on for just a little bit longer. Their insight into God's ennobling and glorifying purposes for the bad things that are happening to you. And they're a corroboration with all the other Christians in the world, that Jesus is near to the suffering heart. And if you've never felt his nearness, they're a corroboration that you can feel his nearness. So here are some handholds. Here are some solid handholds for your faith to grab onto. May the Lord give you faith to hold on. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, wow, 
We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who is made like unto us in all ways except sin. And you have given us such sure and perfect handholds, O Lord. Only give us faith to see. Only give us faith to hold on. And comfort us, Lord, we, as we make our way in the pilgrimage of this hard life, this wilderness, Lord, on our way to Zion, Lord. Comfort us, provide for us, help us. We so desperately need it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.